with a lot of great marketing and a lot of great salesmanship, you know, and a lot of great execution was the thing that disrupted Siebel. And so I do think that it'll, it won't look exactly like what we just described, but I think like once that happens that I just think Esri doesn't exist or ceases to exist at the same scale that they exist today. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Ariel Seidman and and this episode is going to be a little bit different from other episodes. In this episode we're going to be talking about the business of geospatial. We're going to be looking at a few different companies out there in the geospatial industry, in particular Esri, and we're going to be discussing what it's going to take to disrupt them and, and what it would look like to build a really big geospatial company. So think of Esri just 10x. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into the interview today, I want to welcome our new sponsor, Graphhopper. So this is a company that's solving the traveling salesman problem. And if you remember this back from your university days, the traveling salesman problem is given a list of locations, what is the optimal route that visits each location and returns to the starting point? So this is what Graphhopper solves for us. So it's an API, so you can build your applications on top of this, and you can put in things like multiple different vehicle types and profiles. It takes into consideration uh, time constraints, so different time windows, perhaps when businesses are open, when they're closed, that kind of thing, and travel time based on historical data. Now, originally, I really wanted to have uh, Peter, one of the co-founders, on the show and, and to, to have him sort of walk us through how he built his business, but he declined. He's one of those sort of humble geniuses, but he really wanted to give something back. He wanted to be involved, so he decided to become a sponsor instead, and I'm really grateful for that. So throughout the few, next few episodes, I'll be bringing you a few messages from Graphhopper. Okay, let's get into the interview. Welcome back to the podcast, Ariel. Um, I'm really pleased you, you could take the time to, to do this with me. And I say welcome back because you have been here before. In fact, you were the very first person I interviewed on the show. Um, you are the, the founder of a company called HiveMapper. And HiveMapper has also been a longtime sponsor of the show. And for that, I'm truly grateful. But, but that's not the reason why you're here today. We're going to be talking about the, the business of geospatial. We're going to be talking about different models in, in the geospatial industry. And we're going to be looking at, a, at some of the big players and sort of breaking it down and walking people through what's working, what's not working, and, and perhaps where the industry in terms of business models is heading in, in the future. But before we dive into that, perhaps you could just take the time to give a, a brief introduction of, of who you are. So I started off in the mapping industry probably more than 10, 12 years ago, was, worked on Yahoo Maps, Yahoo Search, um, when 30% of our queries were all location mapping based. That was really what triggered my interest in maps and how incredibly challenging and exciting they are to build. Um, I then started a company called GigWalk, which was um, a effectively mobile data collection uh, at scale. So two to three million users who were all collecting local information through their phone for large mapping companies, businesses, world health organizations, um, these incredible organizations. Um, and then started HiveMapper a little over four years ago now, um, really trying to build a new, smarter mapping product. Um, leveraging video, video that is coming from airplanes, that is coming from drones, that is coming from dash cams, um, and turning that video, that raw ingredient, um, which is everywhere in the world, and turning that into intelligent, smart, three-dimensional maps. So really think about it as HiveMapper is doing with video what Waze did with GPS. 
Um, and we've been on that mission for over four years. And last year was just this incredible transformational year. And so um, excited for 2020 and 2021 now. Okay, okay, so you've been doing this hive mapper for four years, you said. Um, last year was a great year. The, th- the first three years, they were difficult. Um, can, can they, they, were, they were brutal. What was it about those three years that was so tough? Building maps is hard. I mean, technically, just some very, very deep technical challenges. Uh, what we're trying to do is, you know, not just build 3D models, but really we think about it as we're building this decentralized mapping network. And so that what that means is that a user today who is flying a drone and another person who's flying, let's say, an airplane in the same area are all adding their map into the same underlying global map. And so that means is you can have many, many, many participants in the map all feeding a single global map. And without that key piece of technology, what you're really just building are these little isolated surveys but they're all disconnected from one another. And there's no ability to really understand what was there even a week ago if you're not organizing everything and stitching everything together into a single global unified map. So clearly there are a whole bunch of technical challenges there. And today we're going to be talking about the mapping industry. And I think one of the challenges whenever you bring something new to the industry is the the story around how do you sell it in? Has that been a challenge for you? Could people immediately see the value of what you wanted to build? Because I'm assuming at the start, right, you don't you don't have a finished product. You have a minimum viable product, something that solves part of the challenge. How was that or what did that look like for you? So you, you went to someone and you said, hey, I've got this thing. We solved part of the challenge. Do you Are you in? Was that a difficult thing or did people jump on it straight away? There were definitely some very early customers that without them, um, they were we would not be here today. So they took a bet on us very, very early. The piece that they loved about HiveMapper were two things. One is this decentralized mapping network. So these were customers that had all of these aircraft, cars, collecting video through dash cams, um, drones even in many cases. And so they wanted to leverage all of these videos that they were generating on a consistent basis and do something more productive with it, right? Rather than just having these video streams that nobody ever looked at again. And so they that piece of the problem was something that was incredibly valuable to a couple of very early customers. And so they gave us the traction, the revenue in the early days to continue on that mission. But the next set of customers are like, hey, this is awesome. You know, I love that you can build maps cost effectively. I love that it's decentralized. I love that there's a single global map. But what I really need on top of that are really powerful tools just that the end users themselves can get a lot of value out of that data. And so what that meant is that we not only had to build the core technology that enabled this decentralized mapping network where anybody can feed video in and it kind of all combines into the same global map, but then we had to build a set of tools that normal people could use. So like, hey, I need a timeline so I can kind of scroll back and forth in time. I need change detection so I can analyze what's changed here. I need object AI so I can filter out the objects that I do care about versus I don't care about. If I'm doing an AGL calculation because I'm landing a helicopter or flying really, really low, um, I need a, a above ground level tool so I can like very quickly assess what are the ta- all the tallest objects in this specific area. All of those tools, they're technically interesting and challenging problems, 
but the user experience also really matters, right? Like, um, just like Excel, you know, in the early days really nailed some of the key user experience elements around spreadsheets and then Salesforce in terms of managing uh, 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 all your sales, all your opportunities really nailed some of the user experience aspects of it. Um, you got to like focus on the user experience aspects just as much as the technology, because if you build out all this incredible data, but you make it really hard to use, guess what? It's only going to be used by these GIS experts and not by normal people within these businesses. Yeah, I, I can I could completely see that happening. And I've experienced similar things myself. So you build something it works for you, but can you teach someone else how to use it? Is it intuitive for them? You know, are you building it for yourself or for, for, for the public? And, and that makes a massive difference to what you're building, how you're building it, and how you sell it in at the end of the day. Thanks very much for sharing that little bit of background about yourself. I appreciate it. And I think it really sets the scene for, for the listeners here. So you're someone who's has been in the industry for a while. You've been involved in several several different verticals by the sounds of things. And, and, and now you're building or have built a successful company and w- with all the problems and challenges and successes that come with that. So you're, you're the right person to tell us more about the mapping industry as a whole. And w- one of the questions we're going to be discussing today is going to be, how, how do we disrupt Esri? How do we build a, a company that's bigger than Esri? But just before we get into that, may, maybe we could take a, a step back and look at the geospatial industry as a whole. How much is it worth each year? Can you, can you give us an idea of the size of the industry? Well, it depends whose numbers you believe, but you know, generally speaking, it's somewhere in the area of $200 billion to 400, upwards to $430 billion. That includes you know, a lot of different dimensions of the geospatial industry. So obviously it includes software. Um, It also includes the actual sensors that are built for purposes of mapping. Uh, It includes a lot, a lot of professional services in that mixture as well, right? So these are people who are taking something like an ESRI or maybe other types of tools in combination with ArcGIS and combining it to create a custom solution for a customer, solutions that are, are incredibly valuable for the customer. It also includes all the data collection services, of which there's a ton of them. You know, these could be mom and pop shops all to, you know, much, much larger companies that are putting satellites up into space. But fundamentally, these people are collecting the raw ingredients that then get fed into various software products that then turn those raw ingredients, the imagery, the video, the LIDAR data, into something that is incredibly valuable for an end user and end customer. You also got to remember that in the geospatial industry, you have, you know, Google, Apple, and then you basically have everybody else. And what I mean by that is that, you know, Google and Apple are investing, you know, ridiculous amounts of money in their own collection mechanism. So all those cars driving around collecting Google Street View as an example of that, that is a capital intensive program and they're doing that on a very consistent basis. And so just Google and Apple are spending in the billions on an annual basis, building and refreshing their map. And then you have kind of the rest of the industry as well. And so it is quite large. If you break it down, maybe one level further, you know, the guys who are collecting the raw ingredients, um, that industry is kind of honestly is a race to the bottom because, you know, hey, I got a good pixel, you know, you got a good pixel, 
you know, my pixel was from, you know, today, you know, my, my pixels from, you know, maybe a couple hours later, like the number of different dimensions that you can actually compete on is limited, but it, it, it's actually a really hard company to build and it's a really hard problem to solve. But from a purely financial economic perspective, the moats are decreasing and the competitive dynamics associated with, you know, selling one pixel against the other are not fantastic. So what I got out of that is that uh, huge industry, a, a lot of money is being spent, but there's, it's also a very diverse industry. You know, there, there's a lot of different players at a lot of different levels. And there's some big ones that perhaps people don't often think about in terms of geospatial. You mentioned Google and, and Apple there. And, and then you talked about the raw ingredients. So for me, the raw ingredients, uh, there seems to be a lot of focus on this at the moment. And mainly it's when we talk about this kind of um, collection of pixels, we're talking about space-based platforms, which, you know, a huge expensive to operate, hugely expensive to get up there. Why do you feel like we're we're racing in, in, in that direction to create these raw ingredients if they're, they're very rapidly becoming a commodity and, and therefore a, a race to the bottom? What is it about the space industry that's is so attractive right now? Well, I think that the, the cost associated with launching satellites is obviously coming down, SpaceX being you know a component of decreasing costs you know, coming up with using commodity sensors um, and other commodity hardware to actually build the satellites themselves. Obviously, you can create satellites now that are capturing imagery uh, of the world at a much, much lower cost than Digital Globe was 15, 20 years ago. So, you know, anytime you have a significant lower cost solution or technology that is enabling much, much lower cost solution, it creates a set of excitement. Um, but at the end of the day, the product that they're delivering is very similar or has certain financial constraints around it that I fundamentally haven't changed from 15, 20 years ago. Is like you're selling imagery, you're selling pixels, and you know, regardless of the fact that there's all this great new technology, um, that is the, the end data product that you're generating and selling, and, and that's a rough, rough business. If you go further down into the stack, you know, even independent data collectors, while a, an enormously valuable and important role, if you're flying airplanes, you know, up and down various cities, collecting LIDAR data or collecting imagery, it's, you're running an airline business fundamentally. Um, you're, you know, you got to think about, okay, how much gas am I going to use? How much do I have to pay the pilots? How much is my equipment, right, to put on my airplane? And that, that's, you know, in many ways looks a lot similar to an airline business. And we know the, the challenges associated with an airline business. And then you go one layer further, you have all the different tools and software packages that are then taking all of that data and trying to do something meaningful with it and trying to create data products that end consumers and end business users could actually use, the big boy in the room, so to speak, in that regard or in that category is obviously Esri, right? Esri is just this fantastically successful company, you know, founded by Jack and his wife, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. You know, amazing story. They never took venture capital money and just grew the business organically to what it is today, which is, you know, probably doing close to $2 billion a year in revenue. 
Okay, so we back up just a little bit here. So we, we don't want to be in the business of, of of anything that's a commodity, right? So we've we've identified this collection of pixels, collection of data. That's not for us. We, we look over the fence, we see Esri. They're doing a great job. They're incredibly successful, privately owned business. Let, let's start, what makes them so su- successful and how would we disrupt them? It's a great question. So uh, there's a couple of different elements to this. One is, let, let's first define Esri. So Esri, software-based product, you know, sold, like I think the minimum price for that is roughly, you know, six or $7,000 a year, you know, for their base product, maybe a little bit less. You know, usually if you're an enterprise user, you're paying quite a bit more because there's all these add-ons that you have to that you have to get. So you're definitely pushing the price up there quite a bit once you get into the enterprise zone on a per user license basis. So a lot of their business, from what you could tell, and there's not a lot of public information on it, is they have I think 400,000 businesses and organizations that use their product or pay for their product. Obviously, a lot of those are cities, right? So city of Pasadena is a great example of this. I think the city of Pasadena has something like 100,000 residents, and they pay ESRI on an annual basis for a license $150,000. So one way to think about their business is it's $1.50 per resident of the city of Pasadena for their all their GIS. But there's all, there's a lot of layers, right? There's other businesses in, in and around Southern California that also use ESRI. There's the county down in LA that probably uses GIS. I, I know for sure that the state of California, various offices use it, and they all get to kind of share data amongst themselves. And so that creates this tremendous, tremendous lock-in effect that SRA has with some of these organizations because they're all using the same data. It would be like everybody, you know, you sharing and, and managing and collaborating off of, you know, GitHub or Salesforce um, and all seeing and sharing that same data, that, that becomes really, really powerful as a lock-in effect for those businesses. That's ESRI kind of at a, at a, at a super high level and then kind of uh, digging into the details in terms of some of the dynamics that make them pretty successful. Okay, so I, I heard you say things like, or, or allude to definitely, the network effect and, and lock in. So, so these are these these are things that we see in Apple, for example. You know, once you have an Apple product, it's better for you if other people have the Apple product as well. It's better for you if you stay within the environment. Things become easier. And I see this is something that that Esri has done really, really well. And, and to be clear here, we're, we're not bagging on Esri. We're not giving Esri a hard time. We're dissecting the business model, looking at what they've done really, really well, why they've been so successful. So firstly, I think that they've they've picked a vertical which which was more likely to succeed. It's not commoditized in the same way as this data collection uh, is becoming anyway. So they've done that and they've built the network effect into their product and lock-in into their product. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the value chain of something like Esri? What, what, what does that look like? Yeah, a couple of thoughts on this. One is, so the, the Esri value chain is not just the software tools that they provide, right? Th- those are obviously like really, really key. But in addition to that is all the data that they then stream in from third-party data providers. Some of it is free, right? So some of it is just publicly organized data sets that they've either curated or managed or you know, pulled in and extracted from a lot of different sources. So, you know, kudos for them for doing all that hard work in terms of data curation. But you, you, when you open up Esri, it, you know, for the most part, it's not a, 
it's not like an empty uh, an empty shell. It comes with all of this great data. Although I don't know all the details of it, I, I do know that they have deals with third da- uh, third party data providers where if you want, you can very quickly purchase additional data. And so they make that part of the of the experience quite quite easy to use. The other part of it is that they um, have a tremendous number of kind of system integrators who then can take ESRI or ArcGIS, the core product, and then customize it in a thousand and one different ways. You know, this is not so different than most enterprise software companies like Salesforce being a good example of this or Microsoft Office. You have all these value-added resellers who then can resell that product, customize it, turn it into their own. So, you know, there's people who take ArcGIS and say, like, I've created an ArcGIS solution just around ports, right? So if you're Long Beach port and you need a GIS solution to manage all of your different um, port of Port of Los Angeles or Port of Long Beach is massive. And so you definitely have a GIS problem and GIS data. And so you're using all of that, uh, th- th- this custom solution that's been created by this third party around that. And so those are the different elements of it. But they also have like, you know, I think they've done a really nice job in terms of just curating and managing this GIS community over 25, 30 years now where, you know, people are, they bleed ESRI in a lot of ways. There's a tight knit community within that world. And kudos to them for doing that. That takes a long, long time to do, but they've done it. And, and it's been a, a key part of their overall value chain. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what you're talking about there, that's something that is often get referred to as, as super fans or a community. They've built a community that really believes in, in what they're doing, loves the product, and they've been using it for so many years now that they just can't imagine doing anything else. So, okay, me, me and you, we're, we're going to build something that's going to disrupt Esri. We need to build something that has lock-in in some way we need to build a community we need to build something with that has a, an add-in or plug-in environment and we need to build an, a network effect to that and it needs to do the job amazingly well that this sounds like they're going to be difficult to disrupt is there, are there anyone out there who's, who's on the verge of doing this is anyone coming close well what about open source for example are they going to disrupt esri I don't think open source will. I mean, I, th- I think it requires a business to be able to manage and, I mean, there, there are, you know, QGIS is open source, but I mean, I think we've all tried to use that and I, I personally find it incredibly frustrating just because of the user experience. It, it has a lot of capabilities, but those capabilities are not packaged in a way that make that tool incredibly easy and accessible for normal people to use. And so I would argue that one of the one of the ways to disrupt ESRI is to actually go beyond the GIS user. The GIS user professional is incredibly important, but you know a lot of the workflows today in some organizations, they all of them have to go through a GIS. And so it's you know how do we rethink this where the GIS user can empower a hundred people, 500 people in the organization to effectively be self-serve, right? And if you can create a tool that's easy to use for normal people who maybe are not dealing with GIS data on a daily basis, then I think you have a really good shot. And so what that means is the business model has to be different, right? Because you can't charge per user, you know, 5,000 bucks per user per head if you're trying to get your product in front of 500 people. 
So you have to rethink the business model and you also have to rethink the delivery mechanism, right? It can't be a Windows desktop only product. It has to go way, 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 way beyond that to be available to, you know, obviously web browsers, you know, are everywhere. They're incredibly powerful. You can build, there's like Photoshop Illustrator level tools now that are in the browser. So we can definitely build the power of a mapping GIS product in the browser now. And so I don't think that was the case, by the way, maybe six or seven years ago, but that's definitely true to that. Yeah, I I completely agree with what a lot of what you said there. And yeah, I mean, web mapping is is that is that distribution mechanism that you're talking about. Not only can I send it out to lots of people in a format they're comfortable with, uh, you know, I in a browser, but I can also customize it. So you don't need to see everything. I can limit the the functionality so you can just solve the problem you're interested in solving. So I, I guess for me this kind of begs the question, is that what open source is missing if it's going to be a competitor? Cuz for me it has it has a whole bunch of functionality. I, I agree with what you said there. Perhaps it's not as shiny, you know, a, as Esri products. They're, they're very polished. Uh, I, I think perhaps open source needs to or could, you know, in, improve that in, in a lot of ways. It has a ton of functionality. It has super fans. Like it has people that are dedicated to open source. There is more and more data available, and it's becoming easier to source and sort of drag and drop into these products. And these products themselves have decent sort of environments, but it's not all sort of bound together in the same way that Esri is. That, that's what I see as being the biggest sort of hurdle here. Yeah, I, I think also businesses want something they can rely upon. GitHub is obviously built on an open source project, but even developers who are incredibly technically sophisticated, that that market of users demanded, needed something like GitHub to manage many key parts of their workflows in terms of you know managing the repositories, managing the check-in, check-out code, right? Like all of that stuff needed to be managed in a easy to use, reliable, consistent way. And businesses need that and require that as just a like, you know, if if that's such a core part of your workflow, you don't want to be relying on the whims of an open source project. Yeah, and what I hear you saying there is, we, you know, we're a business. We want stability. We want to know that you're going to be here tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, and continue to support the, the this lines of products. So personally, my, my feelings around open source are that it's getting better and better and better. And I can see it, for example, sort of slowly creeping into to the industry to to larger organisations here in Denmark. But I think for a long time, the story that Esri could tell. Uh, was that, you know, we are here. We've always been here. We're going to continue to be here. We are stable. We are reliable. And that, that is a huge, huge plus for, for a business. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the one of the reasons why I don't think the, the, the disruptor to this will be S3. I think the other thing with S3, though, is that, I mean, S3 is obviously clearly, clearly a very successful company. You know, like we, like we talked about, we're probably approaching $2 billion a year in revenue. But if you look at the overall macro mark geospatial market, it's still a relatively small component of that. And so if you then contrast that with other big enterprise software companies like a Salesforce or a Microsoft Office or even an Adobe, they're doing Salesforce, don't quote me on this, but I think is doing like $10, $15 billion a year in revenue, if not more. Like why, why why don't you have a company in the GIS mapping space that is software-based business that is doing 
10 billion or 15 billion dollars a year. Like to me, that is the big opportunity that exists. And that is the the thing that we should all be asking ourselves, like why that doesn't exist. I mean, that's definitely like something that we're very focused on here at HiveMapper is like, what will that product and business look like that can hit an even bigger market than what Esri showed us is already capable of doing? Yeah, and I, for for me anyway, that that's still an open question. I have I have no really good answer to that. I, I think that perhaps one of the reasons I could see that geospatial, even though it's baked into so much of what we do, into our phones, into our you know the way we navigate, the way we receive messages, you know, is all somehow located uh, got something to do with location. In an effort to personalize things and, and segment audiences, location is a big part of that. So it's all around us. It's happening in lots of different things and products that we use today but yet we, we still think of it as being a very specialized thing we still think of products like Esri that there's not tools for everyone you know that this is tools for, for for people like this over here and and not the masses and I think that there's going to be a, a big shift that's going to have to happen before we see a, a company like Esri really 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 grow to to some of these other examples that, that you've given yeah I think that I think that's right I think it's like how can how can the industry, I mean, like what, what I think the other part that you hit on there or you were alluding to is this idea that unlike, let's say, payroll software, where, you know, the, the number of use cases in payroll software are, are somewhat finite, the number of use cases within the mapping GIS world, there's obviously some very dominant ones like navigation, but even navigation within that, if you break that down, has a lot of different use cases and nuances to it. The macro point here is that the number of use cases in the GIS mapping space is, is incredibly large. If you're going to build a product that can you know, get to that size that we're talking about, $10, $15 billion a year, you're going to have to have a, a suite, right? And that suite is going to have to touch you know, many, many, many different use cases in very accessible and simple ways. And that is not only just because maps are so technically hard to build, but that's also an incredibly hard user experience problem of how do you not lose control of the product? Uh, how does it not become this massive mess of a hairball um, while still addressing you know, a significant percentage of the big, big use cases in the GIS mapping industry? So, so when you frame it like that, what I could see happening then is some, a company like Esri sort of powering... The, a whole bunch of these these use cases that we're talking about. So not necessarily you're not necessarily seeing Esri on the label of whatever it is that you're using, but that engine, that Esri engine, is somehow buried in the background as providing the analytics, providing the maps, doing that kind of thing. I, I could see that would be a solution for me where it could scale. Where sorry, where Esri is in the background doing some of the analytics, but then that like a, a, a different product is kind of sitting in front of it. Is that is that what you were mentioning or, or or alluding to? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think like you will definitely have pieces of that happen. Maybe I, I think more likely. I'm trying to think of a good analogy here of kind of. Well, this is maybe a little bit older, but I mean Salesforce disrupted Siebel systems, which was kind of the early CRM company in this space, um, you know, Siebel is not sort of existent. I mean, I'm sure there's companies that still use it, but most people have never heard of it now. The reason they got disrupted was that two things. One was business model. So fundamentally, Salesforce 
as a SaaS-based product was a different than a license-based product. So I think business model is going to be a key disruptor of SRE. Uh, unclear exactly which specific business model is going to is going to be the one that that disrupts them, but I, I undoubtedly believe that business model will have to be a key component of that. And then the other thing was just the movement from desktop software to uh, web-based software. So you didn't have to like install desktop. You just run Salesforce in the browser. That was actually the only way to run it. The only way to run it was in the cloud. There was no on-premise at all. And so I think those three things in combination with a lot of great marketing and a lot of great salesmanship, you know, and a lot of great execution was the thing that disrupted Siebel. And so I do think that it'll, it won't look exactly like what we just described, but I think like once that happens that I just think S3 doesn't exist or ceases to exist at the same scale that they exist today. That, that'll be a really interesting time. <laughs> I, think it, I think that will take a while to be clear, right? But I do think in the next six to eight years, you will have a public company that is three to four times the size of S-Ray. Wow. Okay. Let's, uh, let's catch up again in a, a couple of years and, and see how we're going on with that. Uh, I'd like to sort of move on now because I think we're, we've talked about Esri and it's been really interesting for me to hear your thoughts on the business model, what it would take to sort of knock them off the perch and, and, and what that might look like. So, so that was incredibly interesting. But let's sort of move on now and sort of discuss a bigger issue here. And we've kind of alluded to it now. Why? Why is it so difficult to build businesses that scale in the geospatial industry? Yeah, I think we we touched on a little bit, but I think it's worth getting more precise about it. For starters, I think the underlying technology in the mapping space is is really really challenging. You know, it's not like you're building. I keep picking on payroll software, but you know, you know, it's not like you're building a SaaS-based product where you're just you you have a set of rows and tables and you know a database and you know there there you go for the most part. You're building a product that has three, oftentimes is three dimensionality to it. These incredibly incredibly large data sets, and so you have to, from a technical perspective, the, the challenges there are 10x what they are for a normal SaaS application. Then you have a data problem, right? Which is like, okay, you know, just showing up as a tool without any data is like a non-starter. You have to be either give customers the tools to build their data or show up with a lot of data and meaningful data. And so you're just, you're then just in this, you know, all right, you're, you're in the situation where you have to amass and aggregate or build the tools that enable customers to build their own data and then deal with all the nuances of that data, you know, whether it be like really, really heavy LIDAR data or satellite imagery data or data like we have in HiveMap or like video that transforms into maps. So this data issue is incredibly challenging um, and it takes time to aggregate it and accrue it and curate it and all those things. And then you also have to address the problem of making your tool easy to use. And then you have to like finally take it to market price it, package it, you know, put all the marketing material around it. So the level of effort and time that it takes to get some sort of traction in the market is fundamentally just longer than other other types of businesses and other types of products. I think the only one that maybe bears some level of similar complexities is some aspects of payments. I'm definitely not an expert in payments, but from my friends who are, 
as they describe the the plumbing behind the scenes that needs to happen in that industry, it is incredibly, incredibly challenging. So I think that's probably the only one just from a technical perspective. But but that one, like you're, you're dealing with a situation where it's pretty data light, right? So it's like low bandwidth data. The data problems that we have are incredibly high bandwidth, you know, incredibly dense data. So you have that other aspect of it as well. So hopefully that kind of answers some part of the question in terms of why is it so hard to bring to market new mapping products? And I was actually doing the study. Waze was, you know, starting, I think, in 2007 or 2008, right? Waze was really the last mapping company that really, really stressed this idea of a collaborative mapping. But yet, since 2007, 2008, if you look over all the other industries that are doing some sort of software productivity tool, right, you had GitHub in the developer space, you have Figma in the user and design experience space, right? You, you have obviously Google Docs in the, in, 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 the, in the Docs and Spreadsheets category. Like you had all these other companies building these collaborative tools. But in the mapping space, just given how challenging it is, you didn't have anybody else really kind of take the mantle of what Waze was doing for almost 10 years. That's that's a long, long time in, in the technology industry. Yeah, and, and I guess that just that like proves your point a little bit that it's hard. I mean, if it wasn't hard, someone would have been there because the, the opportunity was big, right? So I, I think that really really backs up a lot of the a lot of the things you talked talked about there and a lot of the points you made. I just want to highlight one thing that that I hadn't thought very much about and I thought was a brilliant observation: uh, data. So a mapping product with without data is it's a hard sell. So we can see Esri doing it. We can see uh, other companies sort of opening up their platforms and saying, okay, it's going to come with some sort of default background maps or, or access to background maps, and you know to supply those or to curate them. That that's really difficult so if i think about another piece of software which i think we could compare to something like esri i would choose photoshop for example there's a lot of sort of technical aspects about that i mean um, they perform difficult processes but you as the user you show up with your own data you're not expecting photoshop to provide you all the photos that, that you need and and the the data that they show up with the the test images that that you can try things out on. I mean, a test image isn't that difficult to manufacture. So I, yeah, I can definitely see the data side of it. And I thought that was a brilliant observation. And the data part of it is, I think that that I think is one area for a lot of differentiation and innovation that still needs to happen. And what I mean by that is, today, what do you do when you want to create data in Esri? There's definitely like different apps that they provide, like to collect data, forms that you can like, you know, enable field people to go and collect data when they're out and about doing their jobs. But imagine a world where you didn't have manual, you know, people manually typing into a phone or typing into a desktop any data, and all of that data was just being generated for you automatically. I don't think anybody's nailed that. Obviously, HiveMapper, that is one of our core pieces and one of our core aspects of what we're trying to do is how to you know, take all these video streams car, uh, that are in car dash cams, airplanes, and drones, and how are they passively generating data for that customer? And so that customer, like literally just by driving or just by flying, they're generating data that is feeding into their GIS system. And so that changes the equation, right? Like, how do I collect data? I just drive. How do I collect data? I just fly. Like I'm not, it just becomes part of the things that I already do. 
that then gets fed into your GIS system, that's, that's incredibly valuable to a lot of customers. And if you can do that and do that incredibly well, then you really have something. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I, I don't think we completely escape the problem with data because th that just moves on to a new new problem. How do we get the data from there to over here, to our to our desktop, to wherever we're going to do things with it? Do we take the code to the data or do we take the, co the, the data to the code? And I, I think that there's still uh, a lot of really interesting problems to, to solve there. Yeah, no, those are like, uh, you know, in, until... 5G is everywhere and it's super, super cost effective. You're definitely going to be in this issue where, you know, how do you transmit the data becomes really, really tough. And so it's going to be a comp, like at least from my mapper's perspective, it's going to be a combination of the two, right? There will be some customers who can, they can bring the, the data to the software just because of where they're physically situated. And then there's other customers who are like, that simply is not possible and you have to, you have to bring the software to the data. Ariel, I'm just a bit conscious of the time here. Um, I, I have a feeling we could we could talk about the, these kind of things forever, at least I could anyway. I'm really enjoying the conversation. I really enjoyed our first conversation. This one's been fascinating too. Um, but again, with time constraints, I think we should round it off here. Um, before I let you go, could you perhaps just let the listeners know where they could go to find out more about you, to reach out to you, um, and hear about what, what you've got going on over there at HiveMapper? I appreciate that. Yeah, so uh, check out HiveMapper.com. We've updated it uh, a lot since we last chatted, uh, a ton actually. So now we have this amazing gallery with all of these great example maps that customers have created. Um, and the other thing that we've done is we opened up our global map. And so what that means is that when you upload video, you can obviously create your own map, see what you're building, but that also becomes part of the global map that then everybody else can also leverage and hook into. And so you could have a situation where, you know, a, a bunch of people in the same city start to kind of grow their map together and they can see how each of those different maps are coming together into a single global map, which is a lot of fun, honestly. Uh, and that part of our product has been growing like gangbusters over the last three or four months. And it's just always exciting to see people, what people are doing, right? We have the user doing some really cool stuff in India one day. A whole bunch of other users down in South America doing in Chile doing some some really awesome stuff, uh, and then some folks out actually out in uh, in Norway doing some stuff as well. So it's fun to see all these different climates, all these different people doing different stuff, uh, but they all are sitting on that same map. Hey, I, I just want to say congratulations on your success with, with this. I think it's really, really great that, that you've built this company, that you've done something different. I appreciate that it can't have been all smooth sailing, but, but you've done it and, it and it sounds like it's working out really well for you. So congratulations and, and thanks again for coming along, taking the time to, to walk us through some of your thoughts on the industry. Um, again, it's been a fascinating conversation for me and yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to our sponsor, Graphhopper, for helping make this podcast episode possible. Um, Peter and his team over at Graphhopper have built an incredibly fast, extremely reliable API that you can build your routing application on top of. So if you need to solve the traveling salesman problem, get a hold of graphhopper.com. They do a great job and they're a fantastic team with amazing support. Check them out. That's graphhopper.com. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and you are more than welcome to reach out to me on social media if you have any questions or comments about the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Love to hear from you. Um, you're also more than welcome to catch up with me at mapscaping.com. 
We sell a few products there. We've got a few socks that you might be interested in. Uh, and it, that all that helps to support the podcast. So any support you could give us would be greatly appreciated. That's it for me, but I'll see you next week. Bye.